Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So in the midst of this worship series about good, bad, and ugly theology, we have traversed the theological spectrum, and theology is how we think and what we think about God. It is the collective thoughts of Christians over time and in certain denominations that creates our doctrine. It helps us to organize how we think about God and how we think God is at work, not just in us, but in the world. And so theology is very powerful, and it can undergird decisions and things that we say and do, even if we are unaware of that. But today, we're going to talk about a theology that has very clearly been at work in the world, and it has caused tremendous suffering and loss. Today, we're going to talk about the theology of supersessionism. And if you don't know that word, supersessionism, it is to replace something. It's often called replacement theology. Replacement theology says that no matter what came before Christ, that when Christ came to us, embodied in Jesus of Nazareth, that we received the ultimate covenant and that it nullified all the previous covenants. Now, on the surface, that might not sound very compelling or that it's very dangerous. But what we discover when we study church history and we study human history and we hear the outcries of those that have experienced what that can do to them, what we discover is that over the course of hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years, that there was a time when that idea that Christianity had supplanted all others it made people think that those who were not Christian were inferior, were wrong, and were not worth saving. And that alone should be in tension with our understanding of who Christ is. Christ calls us to be saved from ourselves, from our sinfulness, from our own will that creates havoc and hurts other people. And yet, here is this tension about maybe these people aren't worthy of being saved. And this specifically has been applied to our siblings in Abraham, the Jews. And what we find in our history, which is a dark spot in our history, is that over the course of time, early church fathers, and there were certainly those in the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church and even our own beloved Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, wrestled with what is going on with Judaism. Why are they still here, said Martin Luther. I don't understand. Christ came. You should become a Christian. What's the problem? It's so simple when you are a Christian, isn't it? Of course. Why wouldn't you want to have Jesus Christ be your Messiah and your Savior, the one who loves you like no one else, the one who forgives you like no one else, and the one who allows you to forgive and love as well? So Martin Luther, like many people, wrestled with the idea that there was a time for the Jews. They had this covenant at Mount Sinai that they call the Mosaic Covenant after Moses. 
And they were there and it was that faith that gave rise to Jesus in the first place. And so Jesus came and blessed us and then started the church. His apostles began the early church. So surely everybody should get on board the Christian train. And Martin Luther wrestled with the fact that here we were almost five, uh, 1,500 years later and there were still Jews. Why aren't they getting it? But in his heart, he was saying, why aren't they getting Jesus? Why don't they understand Jesus? And so over the course of his writings, you can see Martin Luther getting more and more frustrated. And that frustration starts to turn to anger. This is ridiculous. Why aren't they becoming Christians? It was fabulous at first. I mean, Christians could say, oh, here's the religion that gave rise to Jesus. And these were... The, the, this is the faith that our early fathers, our forefathers in, in our faith celebrated. All the apostles were Jewish, just like Jesus. And so that was great. But now, this should be the era of Christianity. So everybody should, as I said, get on board. And when they didn't, he began to express his frustration with a people in his writings. But what happens is, and this is where theology is so important, this is where it is vital for us to understand how powerful our theology is. Martin Luther is a beloved saint in Germany. He has given the incredible gift of Lutheranism, not just to Germans, but all over the world. It is one of the largest Protestant denominations in the world. And because of that, his writings are deeply sacred. Just like in the Methodist Church, we hold two things very sacred. The, the writings, the sermons, and the teachings of John Wesley, and the hymns of Charles Wesley. We hold both of those very sacred and close to our hearts. And the thing that we always try to hold in tension in the church is that while we love John and Charles as you know, distant relatives in spirituality to us, we also realize that they weren't perfect. They were human beings and they made mistakes. If you don't believe me, go Google John Wesley, Savannah, Georgia, and see how that goes. He had to flee in the darkness of the night to get back to England because they were after him. So what we discover is that the, the, the writings of those that we hold dear can become internalized. So when Martin Luther was starting to express this frustration and almost this disdain for the Jewish people, that became something that was a part of the way that people thought. And there it was. He's so right about Jesus. He's so right about theology. He's so right about the scriptures. How could he be wrong here? And you don't have to go too far to see the ramifications of this. In Christianity, we don't just study the Bible. We don't just study our history. We don't just study our doctrine and our theology. We have to study our mistakes. We have to study how we have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to recognize where we have been wrong so that we will not repeat it. Repentance is not true if we don't turn our back on the things that cause pain and suffering and death. We must stop. And so as Christians now, decades after World War II, have looked back, we have wondered, how did the Holocaust happen? How is it possible that so many people were killed? And we're not just talking about our Judaic siblings in faith. They were overwhelmingly destroyed in the Holocaust. But others too. Because the theology of 
replacement, meaning that something is either worn out or it is antiquated, it is no longer any good or there's newer and better. That idea is that you replace it. You buy something that is shinier, something that is more effective, more efficient, more economic, more ecological. You buy something and then the other is thrown away, recycled, maybe repurposed. But it is no longer functioning in the same way. And when you start thinking about people as replaceable, you can only imagine how horrible that could get. And so there were, there were people that the Nazis looked at in Germany and said, we are the best, we are here, we have received all these great things and now these people need to be replaced. And at first, people bought into that because they believed that it was saying they were great. Who doesn't want to hear that you're amazing? Who doesn't want to hear that you are so valuable that we need to put you in a position so that you can be seen and heard and effective in the world? He was speaking to their egos. And so they bought into that. And they started to hand over their neighbors. They handed over people to be isolated, to be ghettoized. They handed over people to be sequestered so that they wouldn't taint anyone else. And it wasn't just Jews. It was the Romani, the Roma, the gypsies, as the derogatory word is said. It were people that disagreed with them about politics, socialist, communist, people who lived their lives differently. All of those people were handed over. And before long, the idea that we had replaced somebody else had led to the catastrophic loss of 17 million people. 17 million people. In the United States, that would be the culmination of our four largest cities. If you took all the people in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston, you would have 17 million people. Imagine if they were gone. All of their lives and the connections, the love, the grace, the testimonies, gone. There is a consequence to theology that is focused on making us feel good and making other people feel less than. And over the course of Christianity, we have seen this. I have said before that I truly believe with every fiber of my being that good theology doesn't hurt. So when it does hurt, we have to say, why is that? Why is someone telling me that how I think about God or what I think God is asking us to be and do is causing them pain? Why? Now, sometimes it's causing people pain because they don't want to be told no. But we have to be in conversation and relationship to get that figured out. We can't simply just delegate people as irrelevant. We cannot simply look at an entire population of people and decide that we are better than they. And that kind of mindset didn't lead to relationship and transformation or the testimony of Jesus Christ. It led to pain, suffering, and death that this world still feels today. How you think about another person can mean the difference in this world. If you look at somebody else and say, well, if you become a Christian, then we'll talk. 
then that is going to be embodied in how you relate to them. You won't talk to them as you talk to your most beloved family and friends. You won't do for them as you would for your most beloved family and friends. But my siblings in Jesus Christ, Christ made us all siblings. Christ reminded us that we are all related. That was what was so vital for us to remember and to discover. Because yes, there are multiple covenants in the Bible. And I stand before you this morning wearing the stole that I wear when I officiate holy matrimony. When I perform a marriage in the church or in the name of the church, this is the garment that I wear that displays my authority and my role. And you'll notice that it is embroidered with the cross and two linked rings. And that is because a covenant is not a contract. A covenant is a relationship and an invitation for deep connection. And every time we have an order of worship for a marriage, a holy, holy matrimonial moment, there are three things that must be attended to. You can do just about anything you want in a wedding ceremony within reason. But there are three things that have to be done, and it is my job as the officiant to make sure that they are. And the first is the declaration that both parties come and stand before myself and others to declare with their words that they are not here because they have been forced, that they are of sound mind, body, and decision, and that this is what they want. And that mirrors for us that God never forces us into covenant. God invites us into relationship. God invites us to receive grace. God invites us to take a place in the covenant. But God doesn't say, you know what? You're horrible. Get in this covenant right now. That's a different theology. And so they come and they declare, and then they have their vows, and their vows are what we see time and time again in the scripture. Not just at Mount Sinai, but before that with Noah, before that with Abraham, we see God saying, here is what I want with you. Not want from you, what I want with you. God doesn't give people a list of demands. God says, here is what I will do. I will be your God. And if you choose to be my people, then I will bless you and I will multiply you. I will make sure that I am in the midst of you, which is precisely the picture that Ezekiel paints. Is that God will once more restore God's people. And be in their midst and all the nations will know about this covenant. And so the vows are very important. And in a wedding, that's when both parties come before me and say, I do vow. Not just right now when we look amazing and we're young and vibrant and, you know, everybody is in love with us and we're in love with each other to be married. But it is a lifelong till death do us part covenant. And in that covenant, they promise in sickness and in health and in richness and in poor poverty, in the good and the bad and the mediocre ambivalence in the middle. We promise that we will be committed to one another. And then they have to remember that. So then comes the third piece of the ceremony. And that is the blessing and the giving, the exchanging of rings. And that is to be a sign 
uh, something physically on your body to remind you of that covenant. Now, there is a sign of the covenant for our Judaic siblings that are masculine, and that is circumcision. Their whole body bears the mark of the covenant. For Christians, it's not so simple. Now, you can wear a cross, although I have to tell you, wearing a cross doesn't make you a Christian. You could, you know, deck yourself out and, and, you know, love Jesus things. You can do that. But we wear the sign of our covenant in our heart. And the problem with that is, unless you're constantly being in touch with your heart, you don't see the sign of the covenant. And unless you're constantly thinking, how am I embodying the covenant in my words and in my actions and in my relationships, then the covenant can be forgotten. And that is not what Christ came to give us, a forsaken, forgotten covenant. So we are a people that have to work sometimes even harder to remember, to remember who we have become in the covenant of Jesus Christ. And Jesus believed in the power of covenant. That's why on the eve of his betrayal, he gathered in an upper room with his apostles, and there he transformed the precursor to their Mosaic covenant, which was the Passover Seder. And he took that and made it the precursor to his covenant in his blood. And he gave them the sacrament of Holy Communion. And that sacrament is still ours today. Anytime you need to be reminded of God's grace for you, God's love for you, God's desire to welcome you back when you have been the prodigal child of God, that communion table is there. There is not just a place for you at the table. There is a place for you in God's heart. And that is the gospel message. When somebody says to you, what is the gospel about? What is Christianity about? You know, what is your church about? Do you start running through all the things? Like, do I just read the Apostles' Creed to them? How do I do this? Or do you let people know that if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of Christianity, what it is really is that God wants to be with us. And God wants us to be with God. And not just those of us that look like us and talk like us. Those that have the same immigration status or naturalization those who vote the same way as us. God wants every single person ever to be with us. And the only thing that can overcome all of those categories and distinctions and brokenness in our country, in our world, is the love of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing. And so when we as Christians look back over this idea that we have replaced our Judaic siblings in faith, what we have to remember is that God said very clearly, not just at Mount Sinai, not just in Deuteronomy, but every prophetic utterance, the most beautiful of which, in my humble opinion, is Ezekiel. Ezekiel says to them with powerful words that the covenant is not over, that God has not forsaken them or nullified God's promise. And even though they have failed, God is still with them. God says to them, Your ancestors lived in this land, and now they and their children and their children's children shall live there forever. Forever. God uses eternal language like forever and forevermore 
eight times in seven verses. Because even when we fail, sometimes every day, multiple times a day, God doesn't say, that's it, it's over. Some of us couldn't even make it to lunchtime if we had a three strikes, you're out rule with God. But instead, God says, you know what? You're messing up here. We need to try something else. You need to be better. I created you and redeemed you to be better than this. And I want you to help others recognize my love for them and how you will love them. And the entire point, it will all covenant, covenant about the peace. It will be the fulfillment of that ancient covenant that they have received, that we have received. When you start tracing all the covenants in the scripture, what they do is they widen the arms of God. They allow God to welcome in other people. At first, it was just the Israelites. And then it was those that choose to become Jews. And then it was the Gentiles. And then it was other peoples that had never experienced any of this culture and religion. Anyone that wants to be loved by God is in. Anybody that wants to be forgiven, that wants to have their past erased so that they can start new today, we call that the theology of new birth. It is theirs. So when you start to hear people, and I wish I could tell you that we have taken supersessionism and replacement theory and put it in the tomb and sealed it for all time, you'll hear it. You'll hear it now. And when you do, I hope that you will feel empowered to say, you know, that's not my experience with God. That God hasn't replaced me in God's heart. That God has loved you and I when we have failed, when we have simply forsaken our relationship, when we have walked away, when others were like, get it right. What is wrong with you? Because God is able to be all things. When we need God to tell us we're messing up, God can do that. When you need God to be with you because you are so hurt and broken, God can do that. God can do all of these things all the time. I marvel at how much God is able to do something for me and be completely different for somebody else at the same time. And the best example I have of this is when my son was in preschool. I think he was about two years old. We lived next door to the church. And so we were in the church all the time. I mean, he was in a Moses basket in my office for the first like year of his life. And so by the time he got to preschool, he kind of knew what I did. But one day I went into the classroom that was adjoined to his. And some of the kids in his class came to the door and says, oh, look, there's Pastor Sarah. And Luke said, no, that's my mom. <laughs> and then I get into this little kid thing where it's like, no, that's Pastor Sarah. No, that's my mom. I'm like, easy, tigers. Because I can be Pastor Sarah to this person. And I can be just Sarah to another. And I can be Luke's mom. And I can be Vicky's daughter. I can be who I need to be for the person that I am with. And I can do that because like God, the God in whose image we were created, we are multifaceted. We are a deep, profound people. And if you can find ways in your life to keep loving after you have had loss, if you are able to open your heart to new people after you have lost somebody who was beloved to you, 
then you know in your heart of hearts and in your personal experience that replacement theology is wrong. You don't just forget about somebody who has died. It's not all of a sudden that it's over. No. That's when God says, let me tell you what I am here to do. Every person you and I have ever lost, and I add to that my fur babies and yours, every person or beloved pet that you have ever had, I believe that God is so powerful and so amazing that God can hold all of them in trust for us. And that when Jesus says, I will raise everyone from the dead, that that is exactly what God will do. And raise them all up. And that years and years and years from now, when you and I are dust, that God's going to be holding us in trust too. And on the day of resurrection, that's when we see that God hasn't replaced anybody. God has restored and rejuvenated. God has resurrected, not replaced. And God says, I want you to experience what I promised. But maybe your path isn't the same as theirs. And for those of us that couldn't keep 613 commandments, and for Christians, sometimes it's hard just to get the top 10. For those of us that can't be perfect every single day and aren't willing to engage in animal sacrifice, for those of us that struggle just to get through our day and do what we've got to do and be halfway decent, much less Mother Teresa, for those of us that struggle with that aspect of our faith, God says, my grace is enough for you. And I'm with you. And just because you mess up, I don't replace you with a different Christian. I walk with you. I speak to you. I love you. And I am not about to cast you out. So stop casting out one another. Stop. I long to see the day when every person is resurrected. I want to see a world that is entirely filled with love. When mourning and crying and death will be no more. Because that is what God says. I am your beginning. I am your end. I am your first. I am your last. I am eternal. And I love you so much, I'm willing to make you eternal too. And that is who we are called to be. People who are hopeful for eternity. People who have tasted God's grace and one another helping. But we are also called to be a people who say to those that we encounter and those that we love, you've got to experience this love. Do you remember the first time you tasted communion? Do you remember your baptism? I was too young. But do you remember the first time it clicked for you that God's grace was real? Do you remember the first time that you felt that God had truly forgiven you? And that you were practically floating off the earth because you felt so relieved of your burdens and you felt the lightness of the Lord? That is what we are called to give, not replace, to give. We are givers because we have been forgiven. So may that be what we embody. May that be what we speak. But it takes time to get in that mindset. It takes time for us to be that Christian. But we are at a point where we are beginning to emerge from a pandemic. And we are going to have the opportunity to show the world who we have chosen to come out as. 
Are we going to come out as transformed people? Are we going to come out as the butterflies of the church? Or do we want to come out to what we were before? You have power and decision and autonomy. And all of us together, when we choose God, God says, I'm right here. I've been here every day. I knew you while you were in the womb. I'm going to know you even when you are gone. And that is what should motivate us, empower us, excite us, and carry us forward. Because it's not going to be easy to emerge from a pandemic. You ever try to get up from a nap and you're just like groggy and drowsy? And somebody's like, maybe you should go finish your nap. You don't seem like you're done yet. Let us emerge ready to forgive and to love and to be the body of Christ like it hasn't been since he was here. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.